Amen. Please remain standing and hear the words of our God as we turn to the Gospel of John. I'll be reading from chapter 18, verses 12 through 27. These are the words of God. Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers who had made a fire of coals stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogue and in the temple where the Jews always meet, and in secret I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. Therefore they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied again, and immediately a rooster crowed. Thus the reading of God's word. Let's ask his blessing. Father, humble us as we consider this passage. We are all easily overly self-confident in ourselves, our vows of faithfulness to you and your ways. But we as well stumble, compromise, and even deny our union with you when questioned by the world. Let us learn and apply what you have for us in your word this day, and in this passage particularly, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So the whole thing is a setup, the whole thing. But what you need to notice is it's a setup in two ways. There are two setups going on here. Judas knew exactly where Jesus would go that night. He had conspired with the high priests and Pharisees who then most likely brought in the Roman guards. Together they arrested Jesus with no charges and brought him in the darkness of the night to the home of the chief priests where Annas and Caiaphas were waiting. John tells us in his opening prologue, and remember this, we go regularly to the prologue. In that prologue, in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 1, John writes, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And remember, that word also can be translated, did not overcome it. The darkness could not overcome it. There were two setups going on. We think we're in control of our lives and the plans of God. However, you never can control or overcome the plans of God. Never. They were about to sink down in the very pit that they prepared for Jesus. Psalm 9.15 says this, As the nations have sunk down in the pit which they made, in the net which they hid, their own foot is caught. 
The Lord is known by the judgments he executes. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. And so we have a conspiracy before us. Thomas Sowell speaks of conspiracies this way. Here's, here's what he says. He says, one of the reasons for conspiracy theories is an assumption that people in high places always know what they are doing. When they do something that makes no sense, devious reasons are imagined by conspiracy theorists when in fact it may be due to plain old ignorance and incompetence. Which reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And so as we go into this passage, a very sober passage, I want to ask you to consider some things as we go through it, and that is, can you see the pit? Can you see both conspiracies? Can you see both setups? Are you afraid? Are you afraid of powerful conspirators? They do ruin people's lives. They're about to ruin Jesus' life. The question is, are you going with him? And can you trust him? Think about these things as we go through this passage. And so after these same men, the Roman soldiers and temple guards who fell on their knees as Jesus spoke his name, which we saw in the previous passage, with their hearts hardened in the midst of that, they, they fell on their knees when Jesus said, I am. And they still are the ones who then get up, bind Jesus, and led him away. Caiaphas was high priest, and this is oftentimes confusing to us in terms of what's going on. Caiaphas was high priest, but only because the Romans had deposed Annas. That's not in the scriptures, but in Josephus' historical writings. Um, and Annas is the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Well, according to the Torah, um, the, the, only, the high priest was, uh, was appointed and then served for life. So what's Annas still doing there? Um, but the Romans took control and saw to it that the high priests only ser served a year or two. It appears that what they were trying to do was to limit the strength and power and influence of the high priests in the temple. The Romans allowed for the Jews to continue their worship in the temple, but they had built a tower that, that was above the walls of the, of the, um, of the temple itself where they could uh, peer in and, and observe all the things that were going on. They kept a close eye on this, this regular large gathering of, of, of Jews to keep control of them. And one of the things that they did was they deposed Annas uh, and then um, and they would appoint or allow the appointment of other high priests, but they would only serve for a year or two and then they would be set, set aside and, and others would have to be appointed after that. But um, we are told that in, the, in Josephus's records that five of Annas's sons and then Caiaphas, his son-in-law, all held the position of high priest over the years. And so it, it almost seems that Annas remains under the Jews as kind of a godfather figure. He has control behind the scenes. He still has influence behind the scenes. And, and he must have something to do with the fact that his sons, one after the other, and then also Caiaphas, his son-in-law, serves in that position as high priest. Caiaphas, we are to recall, had earlier, though, unwittingly prophesied about the death of Christ. It was, it was Caiaphas who really begins some of this conspiracy thinking of, 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 of a secret gathering of those who are going to make plans to have Jesus killed. 
Uh, chapter 11, verse 50 of the Gospel of John, it is Caiaphas who says, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. John is just filled with these ironies in his, in his writings. John is saying, wouldn't it be best if we put down this, whatever this thing is that Jesus is putting together, if we kill him, yeah, I know we're not supposed to, but if we kill him, it will save the nation. The death of this man will save the nation. <laughs> yes, that's true, Caiaphas, but in ways you have no idea what you're saying. Right? That's what's, that was what is going on here. And so, and so, notice what is going on. The Lamb of God is being brought to the high priest to be inspected at Passover. The Lamb of God is being brought to the high priest to be inspected at Passover. Well, so we have this dark, dark night then. John does not tell us who the other disciple was. He refers to this other disciple along with, uh, uh, along with Peter. But the evidence points to John himself. There's more than one other occasion where John says the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, um, and, and it, it, as you take a look at all the different evidence, it's pretty clear that John is just not referring to himself in the first person throughout the gospel. Um, but nevertheless, Peter follows Jesus um, up, and, and he's the only one other than this disciple who followed Jesus and into the courtyard of the high priest. But it's the other disciple who gets them into the courtyard, and we're told that it is because he was known to the high priest. So this other disciple, we'll say it's John, John goes in, and then John is able to, to say, um, I want you to let the other, the other, this other guy, Peter, in. He was able to bring Peter in, as, and as he does, there is this slave girl, um, and this slave girl is um, in, in charge of the door, um, and, and she makes a casual remark. It's interesting to, to note that. Let's look at this again um, carefully. It says, um, uh, verse 17, then the, this servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, you're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? Now, notice what she didn't say. She she. She, she doesn't just um, have him stand out as somebody different. She, she identifies him as being with John. You're, you're not another one of those disciples like John is. She's just asking the question um, as, as, he's, as he is brought in. There's no violence in her question, and she acknowledges that John was a disciple of Jesus. But the man who had earlier charged the officers of the Jews with a single sword, who had run to begin the battle to the death, who had boasted to Jesus, Lord, I will lay my life down for your sake, caves to this young female slave with no authority. John Calvin comments on this. Listen to what he says. He says, now at the voice of a single maid, and that voice unaccompanied by threatening, he is confounded and throws down his arms. Such is a demonstration of the power of man. Calvin sees Peter's failure as an instance of the frailty that is common to all of us. He continues, do we not continually tremble at the rustling of a falling leaf? A false appearance of danger, which was still distant, made Peter tremble. And are we not every day led away from Christ by childish absurdities? Uh, one commentator noted as well, the servant woman did not ask Peter whether he was an insurrectionist, a heretic, a blasphemer, or an enemy of Judaism. She merely asked whether he was a disciple of Jesus. Peter, despite the humble station of the questioner and her unthreatening manner of speech, immediately abandoned his fidelity to Christ. 
Following that, then Peter, we are told, joins the officers at a fire of coals. It was cold and it was dark in more ways than one. We're told then that this trial begins in verse 19. The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. He asked about his disciples and then about his doctrine. Well, as this trial begins, um, you ought to know that it's illegal to hold a trial, especially a capital trial, at night. It's illegal to um, bring charges against someone and then require of him to answer the charges as opposed to bringing witnesses forward who make the case for the charge that is being brought. It's illegal to ask that person to come and even bring his own defense in the Judaic law until or at least until after, after those who are, can bring defense to him, uh, defense for him, will also speak. Much like our jury trials. They are to be public. There is to be two or three witnesses. Those witnesses are to be cross-examined. All of our civil um, uh, um, laws with regard to how we conduct a trial really come from the Old Testament scriptures. It's laid out, laid for, laid out for us there. None of that is taking place. None of that is taking place in this courtyard. So Annas first asked the question about his disciples, about his followers, probably because he was worried. How large was his following and were there plans for some kind of uprising? The conspirators, notice this, the conspirators were looking for a conspiracy with Jesus. The conspirators are trying to find a conspiracy with Jesus. Annas wanted to know his doctrine, that is, his teachings. Were there secret plans to raise up a rebel band against the Romans, which would give Annas or Caiaphas reasons to bring Jesus before Pilate? And, and that, so that's why, that's why Jesus responds the way he does in verse 20 and 21. He says, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in secret, I've said nothing. Now, it's not true that he never said anything privately to the disciples. His point is that it, there was no secret plans. There were no secret plans that he was actually putting together for some kind of overthrow of the temple. Not at least not in the way they were thinking. So that's what, G- that's what Annas is, or is, is trying to find out. There were no secrets, though, Jesus says. But more importantly, Jesus is calling for witnesses for his defense. He goes, why do you ask me? This is not the way the proceedings are supposed to go. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Bring the witnesses forward. Indeed, they know what I said. So Jesus very confidently knows that there, that, that there is not, there's no plan for a great uprising. In fact, that is probably what's disappointing um, Judas. That may have something to do with Judas' disappointment and, and rebellion against Jesus. So Jesus was calling for witnesses uh, for his defense, noting that they were not proper legal proceedings. And all that got him, all that got him was a hard slap of a hand across his face. And then it's over. And in verse 24, it says, Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. <clears throat> verse 25 through 27, again. Now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. Therefore they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it. I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied again, and immediately a rooster crowed. So Peter stands at the fire, awkwardly trying to blend in with those who persecute his Lord. Imagine him. Imagine him there. He's watching what's going on. He can see Jesus being um, interrogated wrongly 
And Peter's not doing anything about it. He's standing by the fire, trying to just look like one of the guys, not stand out in any way. And so then his first denial is followed by a second and a third. He might have seen his first denial as necessary to gain entrance, but once he had denied association with Jesus, it becomes harder to claim allegiance later. Once you have denied, once you have distanced yourself from Jesus in some kind of public setting, it becomes harder and harder to then step forward and be honest about your allegiance to Christ. I remember uh, when I went off into the workplace after college, uh, I, I, served, I worked as a CPA in two different offices, one uh, in two different states before I went into the pastoral ministry. And uh, I do recall my, uh, my, our pastors beforehand, uh, both at college and then and, and later on elsewhere, made, made a point of when you get a job, make sure one of the first things you do as you go into the office is make it very clear that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You don't have to be rude about it, but what you don't want to do is just try to blend in as if you are not. And so he, suggestions were made. For instance, when you go into your office, bring a Bible with you and just set it on your desk. Um, have have a, a favorite verse that you might have up. Um, in, in casual conversation, mention the church that you're attending. Any of those kinds of things. And, and, and the reason is because you don't want to be in a situation where you're tempted to deny Christ. To, to act as though that is, that's really not a part of your life. That's not important to any of the conversation that might be going on. Because there will be conversations that will be going on, won't there? So this, this, uh, this one time of denial that Peter gives gets, is followed then by a second and a third as he continues to push himself away from anything um, that might happen to Christ happening to him as well. Was it fear of man that caused him to do this? Was it confusion over Jesus' actions and lack of action? It's hard to tell. We, we, have, we have the um, convenience of sitting back and considering this night for a long period of time, if we like. Imagine how quick these events were actually taking place. Jesus taking his disciples to the garden, the prayer at Gethsemane, the, the disciples falling asleep, the soldiers showing up, this detachment of soldiers showing up, the, the, um, the, the rushing forward of Peter, the healing that Jesus brings to Malchus, the binding of Christ and bringing him out um, and, and bringing him to, where, where are they taking him? And they take him to this, the court of the high priest. And then Peter coming in. And then this mock trial all of a sudden. Take, it, everything's happening fast. And so it's hard to understand exactly how it is that Peter uh, slips. But the one thing to, to notice is, is that once you begin to deny Christ in times of, of threatenings, it's very hard to then move back in and stand and take allegiance with him. It seemed, to, it seemed to Peter that he had lost control, that Jesus had lost control. <laughs> Jesus, who had come to Passover with his disciples, what's he going to do? What's he going to accomplish? And yet now he's, he's in a situation where he, he, might be, he might be put to death. Has Christ lost control? And so he denies him and denies him and denies him. But then we see that God is fully in control. And it's, it's very clear to Peter that Jesus is fully in control with what? With the crow of a rooster. 
Jesus even controlled the crow of a rooster in the midst of this situation. It's a sober passage. What do we learn from it? Think about this for a moment. The high priest was the man who was liturgically closest to God. The high priest was the one who stood between God and the people, and the people and God. The high priest was the one who oversaw all of the sacrifices that would be brought before God. The high priest was, liturgically speaking, closer to God than anyone else in the old covenant system. And then you have Peter, who was undoubtedly one of the closest disciples of Jesus. And here we have the two of them, one conspiring and one denying. I think this teaches us something we don't want to see, and that is the darkness of the human heart, the frailty of the human heart. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? It teaches us how vulnerable we are when our confidence is in ourselves. Peter's confidence as he pulls that sword and rushes the, the Roman legion or the temple guards is in himself. It's so vulnerable when we're trusting ourselves and not, and not believing in a situation that God is completely in control. In fact, when you're, we're in a situation when we don't believe God's in control anymore, what do we all do? We all panic. We all panic and try, and try to be God. And how does that go for us most of the time? Not so good. It, it's, it is, it's amazing. Even after his confession of faith, Matthew 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Even after swearing allegiance to Christ, I will lay down my life for your sake. Peter fails to remain faithful. And I think this leaves us with several things to consider. First of all, we live in a dangerous world. And in many places around the world, it is extremely dangerous to associate yourself with Jesus Christ. It was that way throughout the Soviet bloc countries in my days of growing up back in the 20th century. Remember that century? It was a long time ago. It remains so in North Korea, China, many Muslim countries and elsewhere. We played, prayed for Eritrea um, today. And in our country, while there is not outright persecution... There is heavy pressure to compromise and limit what we mean by saying you are a Christian. So you find it is found out about you that you're a Christian. What does that mean? What does that mean to you? Maybe you'll be accepted for just being a Christian if it's just your particular topping on the ice cream of your life. But what does it mean if you're a Christian? A true follower of Christ believes Jesus is the only way to salvation. It's not just a topping one of the many flavors of religion that we happen to have around here. That's not what a Christian believes. And we ought, we ought not to come across as though we, we think that or leave any doubt with regard to what we think. A Christian believes the Bible is the word of God and that all the word is for all people. We, have, um, we don't cut and snip out of the Bible the verses that we don't like or we find to be uncomfortable or hard to believe or the verses that we think we'll be mocked for believing. A Christian believes that God created man in his image, male and female, with all the distinctions. And of course, as we prayed in this particular month of perversion and pride over perversion, 
it's worth remembering. We are a people who believe that God created man in his image. That we are, we have value because we are created by God and we have a particular kind of value because we were created in God's image and not because we impose in some kind of um, random way according to our own whims who has value and who does not. We believe as Christians that God creates people and that life, he, and the life that he creates begins at conception. We believe that every sexual perversion that can be imagined is defined as sin in the scriptures and that God calls everyone to repentance from those perversions. We're Christians. We believe that Jesus is Lord of all. Even the civil authorities must bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian living in the world today. It doesn't mean that you have some private religious beliefs in, and that make your heart feel better. It means that you believe Christ is Lord. It means that you believe what his word says is true and to be believed and followed. It, mean, it, it means you believe that the rest of the world needs to come as well and find forgiveness and life in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what happens when you're standing around a fire? Proverbial fire, office lunchroom, or some social event with friends, neighbors, with co-workers, with those who hate Jesus, and some of these subjects come up. You try to just blend in? Oh, you're not saying anything. You're not actually, you're, you're not actually denying that, that Jesus is the Christ. You're not denying that he's God. You're not denying that his word is... You're just not saying anything. You're just warming yourself by the fire, blending in. What happens then when someone turns and asks you with regard to those subjects? You're not one of his disciples too, are you? Believing that stuff. You're not one of his disciples too, are you? Second, while we want to see good and just laws, I think it's really interesting, it's, it's um, fascinating to see what's going on here when we think of, of, of wanting um, laws that are just and right and good on the books. While we want to see good and just laws, good and just laws are not going to protect anyone if we are ruled by tyrants and bureaucrats who hate Jesus. And that's our problem today. We live in a world where we are ruled by tyrants and bureaucrats. It doesn't matter what's on the books. Jesus wasn't condemned by a corrupt system, not on the books. In fact, he, he was, he was um, condemned in a system of judicial process that was the most careful and merciful in all of history. It was based on the Lord. It was based on the justice and mercy of God. It was based on the, the evaluation of hard evidence, of just weights and measures. It was based upon um, a, a, a defense of those where charges were brought against somebody until they were actually proven to be guilty. It was based upon even the execution of, uh, of penalties that was, that was merciful, that was no more than an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It was a good system. And in the midst of that good system, because there were tyrants and bureaucrats, Jesus was condemned. Well, it goes for us as well. It goes for us as well. John Adams was said with regard to bringing forth this great constitution that we have in our land, but he, he is the one who said our constitution was made only 
for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Now, you should keep that in the back of your mind as, as when you're charged, when you're charged to think about this, does it matter if our, does it matter if our rulers are Christians? Does it matter? Does it make a difference? Well, according to John Adams, it does. According to one of the writers of the Constitution, it matters whether or not a person who you are going to give rule over other people, whether or not their knee is first of all bowed to the Lord Jesus Christ. It matters. And when that doesn't happen, you have things happen like what you see going on today around us, like what you see going on in the court, in, in, in the courtyard of Annas and Caiaphas, the high priests. Third, it's true that Peter denied Christ just as Jesus prophesied that he would. You'll deny me three times before the rooster crows, he said. And he did. But in another sense, what Peter actually did was deny himself. He did not deny that Jesus was the great I am or that he was the Son of God or that he was Lord. He denied himself. He denied that he was a disciple of Christ. He denied that he was a follower of Christ. In many sense, what did he say? Are you one of those? You're not one of those disciples. I am not. And it's, there is some irony there in the grammar. When Jesus says, I am, ego eimi. When, when uh, Peter says, I am not, it's uke me. They, they, they stand in direct contrast to one another. Jesus, um, before... Um, before men who are able to kill, put him to death, says, I am. Peter, before a slave girl, says, I'm not. I'm not. Denies himself. Earlier that evening, Peter was ready to die for a conquering Messiah, rushing, rushing the guard. But it appears he was never ready to die for the one who washed his feet and who would submit to a crucifixion to wash his sins. But the definition of salvation is union with Christ. It's union with Christ. We were baptized into his death and raised in his resurrection. We are united with Christ in his death and burial and resurrection. The way up in, in, in our way, the way up is down. The way to resurrection life is through burial, death and burial. Galatians 2.20, Paul writes, I've been crucified with Christ. I, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Galatians 2.20 teaches us that Christ died so that we might die, that we might deny ourselves in a particular way and not deny ourselves in another way, that we might die and he lives that we might live in him. In this world, which continues to grow in its violence towards faithful living, will you live faithfully and openly as a follower of Jesus? Jesus says these words in Mark 8. He says, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever, de whoever desires to save his life, maybe you could say whoever desires, desires to just blend in, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. 
But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. And fourth and finally, we must see the hope in the midst of this also in the Gospel, though. Jesus never buckled under the pressure as he walked a lonely road to the cross for his people. Jesus knew what was going to happen. Jesus knew the the denials that were going to come from his closest friend. Jesus knew the the, uh, betrayal, the lies, the mock court system that was going to take place by the high priest whose job description Jesus had written. Jesus knew all of it. And he also knew the words of Isaiah. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. What sweet words those would be to Peter after the resurrection. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus' people needed needed him, needed him to do this, and he needed him to do this because we are all sinners. We are all compromisers. We are all deniers. Not only does he save us from our sin, but praise God by his sanctifying work, the work of his sanctifying grace, we are grown up then into the conformity to his image. Peter would be grown up. Peter wasn't left there. Weeping bitterly, it says in another account. But after the resurrection, as we'll see, recorded only in John's gospel in chapter 21, Jesus will three times ask Peter, do you love me? And commission him to feed and care for the sheep. And Peter, filled with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, will do exactly that. Jesus is at work. Jesus was at work for you on the cross if you've placed your faith in him. Jesus was at work on the cross to take care of all of your slime and shame, all of your self-satisfying sins, all of your rebellion and, and calling yourself your own God, determining for yourself right and wrong. And Jesus not only died to wash that, wash you clean from all of that, but he died so that you could die in that with him, so that you could be raised in new life and be made new. Justified once for all, declared to be righteous before God, but then, as his disciples, stumbling, wavering, falling short, day after day after day, his work in you just as his work in Peter is to make you fully and completely into a new man. You're not left. You're not left on your own. And praise God for that, for his gracious goodness to us as he continues to work in you what is good and right, to make you love the things that he loves and hate the things that he does. To know what it is to be merciful and just in the way that he is merciful and just. And he does that in us. And he does that by the means of grace. That's why he calls you here every Lord's Day. 
That's why he wants you to hear from his word by his spirit. That's why he brings you to the table and signs and seals his truth and his person and his spirit in you. That's why he's making you and the whole church to grow up, to be one perfected body, one perfected bride that will be presented to him. God has not left us and God is not out of control. God does not have things out of control. Not in your life, not in the work of the church. And just like, just like it seemed like it was completely out of control in this, in this night and then the following morning of his crucifixion, Peter and the disciples would say, God, Jesus is not in control. It turns out he was completely in control and completely accomplishing all that he wanted to accomplish in their lives and for the world. And that means every time in your life, it looks like God, is out of con God has everything out of control. What happened? I thought you were in control. It means, listen, listen for the rooster to crow. And you will see how God, in fact, is working all things for good, according to his good pleasure in your life. That's what this teaches. That's the hope of the gospel. And in the final day of resurrection... When all of these broken and then decayed bodies are brought forth from the grave and our souls are joined together, our spirits are joined together with those bodies and we are brought as, as perfected people into that great consummation before the Lord forever and ever to enjoy his presence in a, a fully, completely resurrected world. You'll know he was always in control. It won't, it won't just be the crow of a rooster. It will be a trumpet call from heaven. And you'll be raised. Now, what are you going to do with that today? Because you're probably not going to be raised today. What are you going to do with that today? Well, the first thing you want to do is believe it. The first thing you want to do, is, the second thing you want to do is give thanks for it. You want to, you want to marinate in that. You want to marinate that with the brothers and sisters in Christ and then you want to walk out into this world empowered by him to not compromise. And not just not to compromise because, because of, of the disobedience that that is. But you want to walk out of here and not compromise. You want to knock out, walk out of here and name the name of Christ. You want to walk out of here and be bold for the sake of the gospel. You want to lose your life, let it all go for the sake of the gospel for Jesus because he's going to use it to save others. Because he's going to use it to remake this world. Because he's going to use it to bring glory to his name. And as I've said, as Jesus has said, then he will turn to you. And he will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. It was all him. It was all him in control in your life. And he will give you credit for it. He's far more in control of your life than you will ever realize. And Peter would write this in 1 Peter at the end. He says, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Who here needs to return to the shepherd and overseer of his or her soul?
Who needs to follow Peter? Who needs to stop denying himself the wrong way and start denying himself the right way? Because Christ would give that to you. He would give that to you in spades today. Let's pray together. Lord, have mercy upon us, frail sinners, easily compromised, tempted to distance ourselves from you and your ways in public places and in public discourse, tempted easily to enjoy our private secret sins, sanctify our hearts, strengthen our convictions to walk with you no matter the cost. For Christ in us, the hope of glory, that is our life. And we are the light of the world. Prove that to us again, even this week, as we walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen.